Hello, I'm Alex Amon, your non-binary host, and this is the 54th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today, I'll talk about the 1922 Army Convention. working on this podcast. Um, the past three years have been an amazing experience and I would love to be able to do it full time. Right now I conduct my research, interviews, and recordings around work hours and during my free time. If I could dedicate myself to this podcast full time, I could produce more episodes, I could produce them faster, um, we could cover conflicts faster, I could share information in different formats, I could host my research on different platforms, I could interview more experts and could afford more resources such as books and the ability to travel to archives and other historical sites. If that excites you, if you'd like to see this podcast grow, then you should take part in my 30 in 5 months challenge. I want to gain 30 supporters on Patreon by the end of the year. Everyone who joins now and helps me reach my goal will receive an exclusive handcrafted sticker designating you as one of my original 30 supporters. It also allows you to brag that you love my podcast before it was cool. Um, and now that the begging for money part is over, it's time for making history. I feel like I only share bad news during this section, so we're going to start with some good news. Congratulations, Ohio! Ohio yesterday voted down a bill that would have required, if passed, 60% of the vote to enact new constitutional amendments instead of a simple majority, which is the current ruling. It also would have required citizens who want to place an amendment on the ballot to collect signatures from at least 5% of voters from the last gubernatorial election in all 88 counties instead of the current 44 and it would have eliminated a 10-day cure period that allows citizens to replace any signatures deemed faulty by the Secretary of State's office. So why is this a big deal? Ohio right now is fighting to codify reproductive rights in their constitution. And the way they do that is by introducing an amendment. So the Ohio Republicans wanted to take people's rights away and wanted to make it harder to pass amendments. Which is why it's awesome that Ohio voted this down, because now, come November, they can fight for an amendment that will add reproductive rights to their constitution. And it's even more exciting because if it didn't happen in Ohio, then it didn't happen anywhere with the right organizing and community support. The second item is also kind of good news. It's not bad. It's August, which means it's back to school season, which also means there will be more fights about education and libraries and access to information. So one way you can join the fight is by joining For the People's first cohort of candidates who are going to run for a library board seat or seek appointment. For the People is a leftist organization that wants to protect libraries and information access. If you join their cohort, you will receive 12 weeks of training in three four-week sections. You'll learn how to run for office, identify and pursue an appointment, and govern effectively as a leftist library board trustee. This first cohort is aimed to have candidates run in the 2024 and 2025 election season. So if you're interested in running but are not quite ready, or your race is later than March 2025, stay tuned to learn about the next cohort. 
if you are interested in being part of the fall cohort or you know someone who would be interested, then forward them the link that I'll put in the description and help them, you know, run for library board. And now it's time to talk about the 1922 Army Convention. The pillar of Richard Mulcahy's military philosophy was that the IRA, and later the National Army, was loyal to the Republic and was non-political. The Anglo-Irish Treaty severely tested this philosophy, revealing that a majority of IRA members disagreed with it. For example, after Liam Lynch, a respected IRA divisional commander, heard that the Anglo-Irish Treaty had been signed, he proclaimed, quote, all that had been done, all the sacrifices made, had been betrayed. And quote is from Jared Shannon's book, Liam Lynch to Declare a Republic. Seamus Robinson, another IRA leader, called for a volunteer convention to determine the fate of the treaty. He claimed that if the treaty was, quote, forced on us without our consent as an army of volunteers, then, quote, certain terrible action would be taken. Quote is from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Publicly, Mulcahy assured the doll that the IRA would support the government's decision regarding the treaty while remaining a quote-unquote Republican army. But privately, he was working frantically to hold together an army that had already fragmented beyond repair. Part 1. A Crumbling Foundation The doll's control over the IRA had been a point of contention since the merging of Sinn Féin, the Irish Volunteers, and the IRB back in 1919. Technically, Kafel Broga was the Minister of Defense, which meant that Richard Mulcahy, as Chief of Staff of the IRA, reported directly to him, and Michael Collins, as Minister of Intelligence, was supposed to coordinate with the Army and Broga. Yet, I spent all of Season 1 discussing how this often wasn't the case. During the initial stage of the war, Broga, Collins, and Mulcahy seemed to work together well enough to plan an aborted attempt to assassinate the British cabinet. True story. But by 1920, a split had developed between Collins and Broga, with Mulcahy often caught in the middle. More times than not, Mulcahy chose the path that protected the army from governmental censorship for extreme acts of violence and insubordination, while issuing several personal memos threatening, complaining, and cajoling the IRA men in the field to respect GHQ orders and standards. This often meant he worked closely with Collins to support and cover up actions by the squad, Collins's group of assassins, and other aggressive IRA units. Mulcahy would continue the pat this pattern of behavior throughout the Civil War with mixed results. To muddle things further, Mulcahy saw the current doll as, quote, not likely to be an effective director of the army in case of a crisis involving its being used, deployed, question mark, prior to a Gen L, general election. That, therefore, provided it can be done without dividing or otherwise impairing or prejudicing its position with the people, the sooner the army is put under the type of control under which it will be held after the setup of an, of an FS, free state, government, the better. Quote is from Patriot O'Coin's book, Richard Mulcahy, From the Politics of War to the Politics of Peace, 1913-1924. to but when faced with the convention crisis, Mulcahy would change his mind and rely on the doll's authority to deny the right for the IRA to create its own executive and government. To further complicate things, the quote-unquote protective nature of Mulcahy and Collins combined with GHQ's inability to truly exert its influence outside of Dublin created the conception that the army knew best and that the civilians needed to be put in their place. Many volunteers believed they had defeated the British and they were the only ones who could determine Ireland's fate. 
Many also believed they had fought for an independent republic and couldn't understand how leaders like Collins could quote-unquote betray the cause. The severity of the situation became clear immediately after the treaty was ratified by the Dáil. Four members of the GHQ staff, six divisional commanders, and two Dublin brigadiers immediately made known their rejection of the treaty. Historians estimate that in total, about 65% of the IRA brigades were against the treaty. Geographically, the southwestern and northern parts of Ireland contained the most anti-treaty IRA members. Interestingly, the northern parts of Ireland were not very active during the Irish War of Independence, but saw considerable action during the Civil War. Part 1A, The Faltering Power of the IRB There was also the issue of the continued existence of the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. As I discussed in Season 1, the Irish Republican Brotherhood was created in the 1850s um, and was served as a militant answer to British occupation. The IRB survived throughout the decades until 1916 when members of the IRB planned Easter Rising and then Colin Mulcahy, Lynch, they continued the IRB tradition. Rhoda and De Valera had actually been IRB members during Easter Rising but renounced their membership as soon as the doll was created. Collins was still chairman of the IRB by the time the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed, and some historians believe that he saw the IRB as the true provisional government of Ireland, while others thought that he saw the IRB as a continuation of his power, or you know, additional support for his power. The Supreme Council of the IRB met to discuss the treaty, and with Lynch leading the anti-treaty side, they settled on being, on being neutral in regards to its ratification. However, messages were sent to individual IRB members that the organization supported the treaty, but each member should vote as they saw fit. Three days after the treaty was ratified, the Supreme Council met with the provisional centers of the organization and discovered many of them were against the treaty. Mitsuini and Broda would later blame the IRB for canvassing for the treaty, but in reality, the, the debates revealed just how broken the IRB was. Two polarizing figures emerged from the internal IRB discussions, Collins for the pro-treaty side and Liam Lynch for the anti-treaty side. Flory O'Donoghue wrote that Collins and Lynch, quote, admiring and respecting each other, but each apparently immovable in his conviction, wrestled with the grim threat of disunity. Quote is from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Part 2, The Army Convention, Desperate Attempts at Unity by Desperate Men. Richard Mulcahy pinned most of his hopes on keeping the IRA together on Liam Lynch, which isn't as foolish as it seems in hindsight. While Lynch made known his distaste of the treaty, he wrote to Florence O'Donoghue, quote, I do not recommend immediate war with the British, as our front is broken, which our leaders are responsible for. He also wrote to his brother that the days following the ratification were crucial, and quote, Whatever will happen here on this week of destiny, we must and will show a united front. Thank God that we can all agree to differ. Majority of the doll will stand by majority no matter what side. The same will apply to the army. Therefore, there will not be disunity as in the past. He wrote further that the treaty was only a means to the end of an Irish Republic. It was, quote, only a question of the best means to smash her for Ireland's freedom's sake. And if, quote, we must temporarily accept the treaty, there is naturally another lap to freedom, and we will certainly knock her, Britain, off next time. And all of those quotes are from Jared Shannon's book, Liam Lynch to Declare a Republic. While Lynch and the 1st Southern Division, his division, 
disagreed with the treaty, he did not yet believe that outright rebellion was needed. However, he believed a united IRA was the best organization to see a liberated Irish Republic, not the Dáil, Sinn Féin, or later the Provisional Government. At the same time, Mulcahy had reasons to doubt Lynch's loyalties, and maybe he should have known better than to rely on him. Not only was the first Southern Division one of the first units to publicly reject the treaty, but when Mulcahy asked Lynch to explain why some of his men destroyed a pro-treaty printing press and kidnapped a pro-treaty journalist, Lynch replied, quote, It is with deep regret that I have to acquaint you that while at all times I shall do my utmost to carry out your orders, maintain general discipline, and above all insist on truce being maintained, I cannot carry out any order against IRA principles during the present treaty negotiations when our principles stand in danger of being given away by our unthankful government. And quote is from Jared Shannon's book, Liam Lynch, to declare a republic. After the treaty was ratified, the anti-treaty IRA stated that they believed the, quote, army should revert to its status as a volunteer force under the control of an elected executive, and the executive would be elected during an army convention. Flory O'Donoghue argued that the best way to keep the army together was to preserve, quote, its democratic and voluntary character. Both quotes are from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. The anti-treaty IRA didn't seem to care that an army convention hadn't been called since 1917, and the army executive had been disbanded in favor of the central command of GHQ and the Dáil. On January 11th, the anti-treaty IRA, including Lynch, Roy O'Connor, Liam Mellows, formally asked Mulcahy to call an army convention no later than February 5th. They wanted to discuss the following three points. Reaffirmation of the IRA's allegiance to the Irish Republic, the army would remain the army of the Republic and would elect its own executive, the executive and the executive alone would have supreme control over the army. The convention would consist of all divisional commandants and other select brigadier generals. And they would also draft a constitution which would be revised during a different convention. If this sounds ridiculous, it is. There isn't a government in the world that would agree to an army that was answerable only to itself, and the anti-treaty IRA knew that. Liam Lynch himself admitted he, quote, could see the difficulty that any democratic government would have in accepting the position that the only military force in the country was not in any way under its control but he was at all times unwavering in the conviction that the army should not in any circumstances abandon its allegiance to the Republic or, quote, be committed to support of the treaty. Quote is from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Mulcahy immediately went to the cabinet and advised rejecting the convention, claiming, quote, the proposal is entirely outside the constitutional powers vested in the Dahl Aaron executive by the Dahl. Without a resolution being passed by the Dahl, the proposal could not be it's acceded to. Quote is from Pedro O'Coyne's book, Richard Mulcahy, From the Politics of War to the Politics of Peace. He then replied to O'Connor and the others on January 13th, stating that only the Dahl could exercise supreme control of the army and that the requested changes were beyond the powers of the Dahl executive. He offered to hold a conference to discuss the convention and met with Liam Lynch and several other officers five days later. Conversation did not go great. Liam Lynch had a little bit of a breakdown, but Mulcahy kept the channels of communication open, offering to meet with anti-treaty officers individually. Mulcahy, Lynch, and the others would meet again, and during that conference, Mulcahy agreed to hold an army convention two months later. 
On February 27th, Mulcahy met with the cabinet to discuss whether they should alert the Dahl, which was meeting the next day, about the army convention. He recounted the cabinet meeting as follows, quote, Having previously foreshadowed to the Dahl cabinet that a proposal to call the convention of the volunteers was under consideration, the Minister of Defense at a cabinet meeting on February 27th indicated that he desired to ask permission from the Dahl at its meeting on February 28th for the holding of a convention. Considering it inadvisable that it should be publicly known that a volunteer convention was being held, the cabinet decided that the matter should not be brought before the Dahl and accepted the recommendation of the minister. Quote is from Pedro O'Coin's book, Richard Mulcahy, From the Politics of War to the Politics of Peace. He met with Lynch once more and asked him to postpone the convention until after the general election. Lynch refused. Griffith stepped in and forced Mulcahy to reject the request for a convention. Instead, he moved cautiously and met with Liam Lynch several times in March to discuss the issue. On March 15th, the provisional government banned the army convention, claiming that, quote, any effort to set up another body than the Dahl in control of the army would be tantamount to an attempt to establish a military dictatorship. Desperate to keep the army together, Mulcahy traveled to a council of the 1st Division at Malo on March 20th. And I want to point out, he was not invited. He was gate-crashing this meeting of very angry anti-treaty people. He agreed to hold yet another meeting of all brigadier and divisional commanders. This meeting would elect an eight-man council to discuss proposals, quote, for associating the IRA with the government elected by the Irish people. Both quotes are from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Lynch and O'Donoghue agreed to Mulcahy's proposal, but with two caveats. One, if the proposals of the Council of Eight were to go before the Dahl cabinet, as a goodwill gesture, the planned army convention was to be delayed from the 26th of March until 18th of April. Two, recruitment into the new police force, the, civil, the Civic Guard, was to be discontinued. And both quotes are from Jared Shannon's book, Liam Lynch, to declare a republic. This proposal fell apart when Collins and Griffith disagreed with Lynch's terms, and the anti-treaty IRA held the army convention anyway on March 26th. The convention consisted of 200-plus members, representing about 50% of the army. They elected a 16-man IRA executive and drafted a new constitution. This constitution granted the executive control over the army. Liam Lynch was elected chief of staff and declared that the army's purpose was to, quote, guard the honor and maintain the independence of the Irish Republic, and to, quote, serve an established Republican government. Both quotes are from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. The convention would meet again on April 9th, where a permanent executive and a permanent GHQ were created, and a vote to disrupt the upcoming general election was narrowly defeated. However, during this April 9th meeting, um, the anti-treaty side already started to split, because Lynch was upset that the original executive didn't have enough men from the Southern Division, and he forced Rory O'Connor to step down. Whereas Rory was like, why didn't you complain about this during our last meeting? So already we're seeing that there's a lot of miscommunication and distrust and dysfunction within the anti-treaty IRA. Mulcahy responded by publicly claiming that the convention, quote, breaks, definitely, to some extent, the, quote, solidarity and organization of the army, but he did not believe it broke its, quote, wonderful brotherhood. Yet he also declared that any officer or man attending the convention will thereby sever his ties with the IRA. And quote is from Charles Townshend's The Republic. 
Part 3, Race for Control Over Formerly British Barracks One of the ways Britain established its control over Ireland was through a series of barracks placed all over the island. These barracks housed mostly IRC members, Royal Irish Constabulary, and then the Black and Tans and Auxiliaries. However, after the treaty was signed and ratified, Britain would no longer occupy these barracks. A formal transfer protocol wasn't even put in place when the handovers began. And to be fair to the provisional government, it had a lot going on, and when Mulcahy wasn't running around negotiating with Lynch, O'Connor, and other anti-treaty IRA members, he was hammering the Dublin Guards into a core unit of the National Army, while also recruiting, while also trying to figure out how do you form an army. Um, he had a lot going on, and the barracks just became a secondary importance in his mind. Um, especially since he was also determined to heal the growing split within the IRA, right? We had talked about, like, just a minute ago, we talked about how, like, no one wanted civil war. And so if all of a sudden you're like, Lynch, you can't hold this barracks because you may use it as a fortification for against us during civil war. That's not going to be good for anybody, right? So there should have been a protocol, but also understandable why there wasn't. The British soldiers started withdrawing as soon as the Dáil ratified the treaty. The 1st Infantry Unit, the 1st Battalion of the Duke of Wellington's Regiment, left Dublin on January 20th, 1922. The Clodine Barrack in Tipperary was handed over on January 25th, and the Bedders Bush Barracks was handed over on January 31st. Some British officers were hesitant to hand over barracks in quote-unquote troublesome areas, but once Emmett Dalton, the negotiator for the Free State, strongly encouraged a speedy transfer, the British were happy to let the Irish take control. Dalton wrote to Ginger O'Connell that he was, quote, sure they will endeavor in every way to help us. The quote is from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. However, the National Army didn't have enough recruits to man all the barracks, which meant many would have to be closed. However, there wasn't any guidance in place on how to decide which ones would close and which ones would remain open. This also meant that there weren't enough forces to maintain peace and order as the IRA fragmented more and more. Vandalism, thefts, and other petty crimes grew in areas like mid-Limerick, causing one doctor whose car was stolen to complain, quote, Bad as the Black and Tans were, they never interfered with the cars of doctors. Quote is from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Rory O'Connor, one of the die-hard anti-treaty members of the IRA, assured Mulcahy that his forces desired to, quote, cooperate with you in hastening the evacuation of the country by enemy troops, but to that end, the signatories can only act on orders issued by you and countersigned by me. Quote from Jared Shannon's book, Neum Lynch to the Clare Republic. Part 3A, Problems at Bedders Bush. The provisional government turned Bedders Bush into the first training base for the developing National Army. The barracks was occupied by the Dublin ASU, made up of members of Collins' squad, and 46 volunteers from the Dublin Brigade, commanded by Paddy O'Daly. They would be renamed the Dublin Guards and would be brought to brigade strength by July 1922. Even though the occupation alarmed the anti-treaty IRA, the provisional government takeover was hesitant and confused. It was organized by Eowyn O'Duffy, who replaced Mulcahy as chief of staff, while Mulcahy took the Minister of Defense position within the Dáil cabinet. And we'll come back to O'Duffy. Just need to say it right now. O'Duffy is a fascist piece of shit. I will never say anything good about him on this podcast. 
Some IRA members, quote unquote, admired O'Duffy because they perceived him as a fighting man. However, others, like Liam Ford, a brigadier in mid-Limerick, considered him a traitor. He wrote, quote, We declare that we no longer recognize the authority of the present head of the army and renew our allegiance to the existing Irish Republic. And quote is from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. The British left Bedgers Bush on February 23rd. Original government forces, led by Michael Brennan, marched on the barracks from East Clare. Ernie O'Malley, an officer of the anti-treaty army, gathered all the men he could to claim the barracks from the pro-treaty forces. Brennan wrote to GHQ that his position was a vulnerable one and he expected to, quote, get an ultimatum today, giving us 24 hours to clear out. He technically had 570 men under his command, but only 300 of them were armed and too many had, quote, associations with the mutineers, anti-treaty forces, to be properly reliable. He wrote that his men only had, quote, 50 rounds of ammunition per rifle, which is not nearly enough for what we are up against here. He requested, quote, a couple of thousand Mills bombs at once, as well as 500 rifles, and, quote, at least one more armored car, two if possible. He also requested, quote, a bid supply of Thompson ammunition and a few more Thompsons. Any chance of Lewis guns and a few gunners. And all those quotes are from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Finally, Brennan asked for a tank and armed launches to fire on the river. Brennan feared the barrack was weak and thought they'd be easily trapped by anti-treaty forces if he didn't receive further reinforcements. He didn't receive any tanks, but he received the first Rolls-Royce armored car to be handed over by the British. Despite Brennan's and O'Malley's eagerness to fight, the clash never occurred. O'Malley urged more decisive action to entrench anti-treaty forces in Limerick. He believed that if Limerick fell, they would easily be pushed out from all other important military positions and lose whatever momentum and advantage they currently had. On the pro-treaty side, Griffith also recognized the importance of Limerick. During his only formal address to the cabinet, he argued that the government had a responsibility to protect the people of Ireland. Quote, if we let the situation through our fingers, we will be looked on as the greatest pack of poltroons that ever held the fate of Ireland in our hands. Quote is from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Collins was less committed, and Mulcahy argued that the National Army was not yet ready for a major military conflict. On March 10th, Liam Lynch and Oscar Traynor met with Collins, Mulcahy, and O'Duffy to settle the Limerick situation. They reached an agreement where the anti-treaty side would occupy most of the barracks in the city, and the pro-treaty side would occupy one police barracks. The only reason the other anti-treaty members agreed to such a compromise is because of Liam Lynch's presence. Writing to his brother, he explained that the, quote, stunt in Limerick was all gas, a disgrace to both sides, especially the Limerick and Tip men. Thank God I was used to bring pressure to bear at absolutely the last moment on GHQ to save slaughter in the streets of Limerick. Had it happened, the nation was forever disgraced. The quote is from Jared Shannon's book, Liam Lynch to Declare a Republic. Not everyone was as satisfied as Lynch. GHQ was unhappy about the compromise, and Ginger O'Connell later wrote that, quote, All the territory we lightheartedly gave up to the mutineers had later to be hard fought for. He also blamed O'Duffy for the quote-unquote disaster, claiming that, quote, worst waste of what was once promising material would be hard to find, all because high command was totally unfit for its task. Both quotes are from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Tensions between the two sides increased even further when Rory O'Connor held an impromptu press conference and 
and claimed that, quote, if a government goes wrong, it must take the consequences. And that our view is that the government has abolished itself, not exactly abolished, but it has done something it has no moral right to do. The doll, in deciding that the Irish Republic should go into the British Empire, has committed an act of national dishonor that we won't stand. When asked if he was declaring a military dictatorship, he replied, quote, you can take it that way if you like. And all quotes are from Jared Shannon's book, Liam Lynch, to declare a republic. Despite this provocative statement, the anti-treaty IRA didn't have any idea on how to coordinate a mass action against the provisional government's forces, or even if it wanted to. Flory O'Donoghue would, claim, would complain that the anti-treaty, quote, executive never fused into an effective unit and never had a common mind. Quote is from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. Instead, they attacked small targets like the Freeman's Journal until Rory O'Connor had the quote-unquote brilliant idea of seizing the four courts on April 13th. This was the same building the rebels of 1916 seized during their own uprising. We have a whole episode dedicated to the taking and retaking of four courts, but taking the building was a colossal military mistake. Just like the rebels of 1916, the anti-treaty IRA didn't have the forces, weapons, or coordination to hold a building like the four courts. In fact, the provisional government seemed only mildly perturbed by the takeover. Collins acknowledged that, quote, no government in the world could exist without controlling its army. Quote was from Charles Townshend's book, The Republic. But neither he nor Mulcahy planned any military response. Honestly, the provisional government had more pressing concerns, like holding a general election in a country on the verge of civil war. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. You can listen to my full catalog on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, and my website, www.samswarroom.com. Please uh, help me reach my goal of 30 patrons by the end of the year by joining my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Warfare. Until next time, wear a mask, organize your community, and stay safe.